Hello and welcome to the Price of Peace episode of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And we are also going to bring in Emily's colleague, Zach Carter, who has written a whole book about John Maynard Keynes. He was very gracious and came on our live show and dropped a huge amount of knowledge about the guy who more or less invented modern economics. So that was fascinating enough that we are going to share it with you on this here show. So Zach Carter, let's join you. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And we have a very, very special guest, Mr. Zach Carter, also of HuffPost. Zach, what is the prop that you have behind you? It's uh, it's a book. It's called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And you guys are not going to believe this, but I actually wrote that book. You wrote a book? Congratulations. The whole thing. Yeah. Is, I didn't even hire a ghostwriter. Are you a serial book author? Well, I, you know, I will at some point be a serial book author, but for now, it's my only book. Well, congratulations on writing A Life of John Maynard Keynes. We have referenced John Maynard Keynes many times on Slate Money, but I don't think we've ever really much talked about him on the show. So this is our opportunity. While everyone is pleased, jumping in, asking questions, let us know what you want us to talk about, and we will talk about it. This is... There's close as sleep money will ever get to a live call-in experience. But we are going to start by talking about Keynes, who, uh, help me out here, Zach, Englishman, a bit of a homosexual, basically reinvented the entire global economy. He's dead. So there's that too. Uh, you know, <laughs> most people know him, at least I, I came into contact with his ideas through an Econ 101 course, where I learned that he was the guy who said, you should spend money in a recession in order to sort of lift the economy up out of the doldrums. And it was okay for governments to run deficits under those circumstances. And it turns out that this is this is like a very shallow, tiny piece of his life's work. He's this fascinating philosopher 
who was buddies with everybody in the Bloomsbury set. So Virginia Woolf was one of his best friends his entire life. He's constantly hanging out with philosophers and debating the nature of truth and drinking champagne and having his hair cut and debating novels and poetry. And his economics is really an attempt to sort of express this sort of Bloomsbury credo to the world at large and make it something that's sort of a politically operable public philosophy, not just something for people to do while they're getting their hair cut and drinking champagne, but something that's deeply ingrained with the way society is organized. Um, are we off to a good start here? I can keep going. There's 600 pages to the book. This is a, a, a great <laughs> start. So basically, when people say Keynesian, they generally just mean the economics. But what you're saying is that the economics is deeply sort of tied up with the whole worldview. And so if something is Keynesian, it really does sort of mean this kind of left wing, but also like upper class kind of what noblesse oblige. Try and describe the Bloomsbury group for us. It doesn't fit any of our contemporary political categories in, in, in any very clean way. Like the Keynesian economists today are people like Paul Krugman or, uh, you know, Stephanie Kelton, people who we associate with the political left or, or liberalism or the Democratic Party. But Keynes himself is this kind of weird hybrid of all of these different currents that are happening in, in what I would call like enlightenment liberalism more broadly. The crises of the early 20th century are a huge problem for enlightenment liberalism because they're not supposed to be possible. People are supposed to be rational. They're supposed to be able to make good decisions. Democracies are supposed to avoid war. And yet we have World War I and the Great Depression. And, and these things are not, they're not supposed to happen. And Keynes is someone who really admires the sort of egalitarian ethos of somebody like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, but who also is very worried about social change and social upheaval the way that Edmund Burke is. And he's trying to find a way to synthesize all of these different philosophers into sort of a coherent program for public action to prevent you know radical change from becoming a problem. So it's it's very conservative in in a certain sense. But he's hanging out with all of these people who are you know basically they're they're middle class aesthetes, but the British middle class at the beginning of the 20th century it's it's not like the middle class today in in the United States. Like everybody in the United States today identifies as middle class. Like basically unless you are getting getting hit by the bush tax cuts you you are considered middle class in the United States, but in in Britain, I mean, it's it means that you have time to engage in in the finer things, to think about philosophy and write novels, and you know, you you maybe have a little bit of property, so you don't have to you don't have to worry about getting evicted if you don't go to work on Tuesday. That's sort of the milieu he's working in. So it's not it's not like he comes out of this sort of Marxist revolutionary collectivist kind of social scene. He's he's hanging out with well-to-do people trying to he's trying to come up with a, a an economic philosophy that will allow that way of life to be preserved. And I think when he's very young, one of the problems with talking about Keynesian economics is that Keynesian economics changes over the course of his life. You don't get to the general theory until 1937, but he's writing works of economic theory as early as 1912, and he keeps changing his ideas because his ideas keep not working. The social upheaval of the time just continues, and he he thinks, okay, well, let's try something different. Let's try something different. Maybe this is not the way the world works. And eventually, you get to the general theory, which is the sort of foundation, I think, of of modern economics as we understand it today. But also, 
a very selective foundation. Milton Friedman is is the guy who's famous for saying, we're all Keynesians now. We think that it's uh, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon actually says, I am now a Keynesian in economics. But Milton Friedman's the guy who says, we're all Keynesians now. And he says this in a very sort of narrow sense, that there are sort of a, a set of categories and ways of thinking about what the economy is that Keynes really develops. Milton Friedman, very much not a Keynesian. But what you actually do with those tools is something that has been, I think, hotly disputed ever since the 1930s. And Keynes himself, you know, by the 1940s, he has a, a fairly radical social vision that he wants to use these tools to implement. But you can use them for all sorts of purposes. Uh, you know, I think, I think Donald Trump was a very Keynesian president in a certain respect. I mean, he ran up gigantic deficits and cut taxes and didn't worry about, you know, spending a lot of money on the military, for instance. I think Keynes, in his social vision, would have found that offensive for, for a lot of different reasons. But the sort of tools that he, he developed as an economist, they're not necessarily progressive or conservative. They don't fit any particular category. They're, they're sort of value neutral. What's interesting to me about Keynes is why he thought these tools were necessary to implement his, his broader progressive vision. Well, and I think that one of the things, as you say, and as you say in the book, that is so interesting about Keynes is this evolution and are these contradictions. Because one of the things that Keynes does that is really interesting and I think really important is that he brings up the idea of uncertainty in economics. He challenges this idea that there are these underlying laws or formulas or kind of truths in mm-hmm. economics and, and says, no, actually, you know, you, you kind of need a human hand in there. The markets just don't always correct themselves. And then he titles his most famous work, General Theory. <laughs> you know, this is clearly, clearly a contradiction. And in the yeah. same way that he, he has this idea of evolution, but then to a certain extent, he dies. And then the people who take up his ideas seem to suggest that, well, no, actually, now we have found, you know, the, the ultimate truth, and it is Keynes. Yeah, I, I think your point there about, he called it the general theory. I mean, he was really trying to invoke Einstein with that. Like, right. this, this, this is like the general theory of relativity. This is the general theory of economics. Here is a set of principles about how the world works. And yet, the principles he comes up with are very amorphous. There are not a lot of right angles in the general theory. Well, well, they would need to be, right? In order to be general. If you have to be able to generalize them across like any society at any time, it would have to be pretty amorphous. And I mean, frankly, they might be amorphous, but let's not hold him to an impossible standard. Everything in economics is pretty amorphous, like especially macroeconomics, which is his his field. I think criticizing a macroeconomist for the crime of being amorphous is like, well, it's macroeconomics. It's, it comes with the territory. Uh, you know, I think that's a wonderful point. Uh, but I think even even within the field, I think Keynes is is injecting amorphism <laughs> into into the <laughs> equation. I mean, Keynes objects to the idea that we can talk about rational decisions about our livelihoods and about our finances. He says, look, we don't know what's coming down the pike. We live in a, a condition of radical uncertainty. The basic problem for economic humanity, he would have said economic man, but we don't say those things anymore, is not trying to figure out how to rationally deal with scarce resources. It's, it's trying to figure out how to manage an uncertain future. And when you don't know what's coming down the pike, if you don't know that well, there's a Well, I should pandemic. say, like, you know, this is an idea which exists right now. We have, like, Mervyn King, who used to be the governor of the Bank of England, has just come out with a book <laughs> called Radical Uncertainty, which is making exactly this point. It's not like Keynes is uniquely at the epistemic fringes here. I think, I think that one of the things that economists, or, like, if, you know, if you get them in a sort of quiet moment when they're not bloviating on CNN, they will tell you, like, there's no such thing as 
an economic forecast or, you know, an understanding of what's going to happen if we do this or if we do that. Everything in economics is much fuzzier. The error bars are much bigger than anyone wants them to be, especially than the politicians want them to be, right? The politicians are the ones who are really to blame here for, like, requiring certainty from economists. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. To the point of the general theory being general and not having major rules for economics, the one thing that struck me in your book throughout was Keynes sort of putting humans first, putting cultural first, and putting kind of like the market last. And there is this sort of like, I think it's just sort of like a weird, arrogant, wrongheaded way of thinking of economics as like the market is this right as this like rational actor and there are rules you must follow and like like you were saying about scarcity like you just have to manage scarcity and Keynes kind of turns it all upside down and he's like the important thing is you know people <laughs> not going without pe- you know having a, a a sustainable society where you know people can thrive and be human like that's the p- important thing it's not about a certain amount of going on the gold standard or like these wacky rules that people think are are concrete and and unmoving and even as everything has sort of advanced from back in those times, it still feels like that's the push and pull in economics and in our politics, you know, with people, we don't have enough money to help hungry people and stuff like that. It's like, no, 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 no. You help hungry people, you figure out the money. Like, money's not real. Let's let's be real about this. Like, it seemed like Keynes understood what was real and what was made up. And he kind of knew money was kind of made up. He, he, thought, he thought money was like a tool, you know? So, so this is the question which I wanted to ask you, Zach, is actually directly about this, which is Keynes understands that what matters is the real economy. How, like people with jobs, people with, yes. you know, companies which produce things. And, and, you know, money is a unit of account, basically. And it's a useful thing which governments can print if they need to. And that can have certain consequences, which he lays out. Now, square that, if you will, with Bretton Woods. Explain to me what happens in Bretton Woods, what Keynes's role is in, in Bretton Woods, and, and like what that meant for the entire international financial system for the you know, subsequent, what, 40 years? 30 years. It's a huge, huge question, because what happens <laughs> at Bretton Woods is basically a giant geopolitical street fight, brutal one, between John Maynard Keynes in the United Kingdom and Harry Dexter White in the United States, who have different visions about what the sort of geopolitical hegemonic system is going to be at the end of, of World War II. And they don't 
fundamentally agree about the sort of underlying politics that are going to be guiding Bretton Woods. And if you go through Keynes, as early as 1930, he's starting to sketch these sort of ideas. He can see that the gold standard doesn't work. And I think when most of us talk about the gold standard today, we're talking about the convertibility of gold in a sort of domestic exchange kind of situation. Like, okay, if I've got a dollar, I can exchange it for a certain amount of gold. And that is important in my ability to hold dollars or hold gold or or other resources. But it was an entire system of international exchange. The, The whole point of the gold standard was that, you know, different currencies were sort of like different names for different amounts of gold. So you were able to conduct trade on this very predictable kind of kind of basis. The problem with the gold standard, Keynes thought, was that when countries got into trouble, when their when their deficits got out of whack, their trade deficits, importantly, they were forced to deflate their currency values in order to make their gold hoards sort of add up. And deflation resulted in a lot of suffering. It, it resulted in a lot of social pain. So high unemployment. And for Keynes, high unemployment, you know, that's bad. But what's really bad is the possibility that like the citizens are going to revolt and there's going to be no more haircuts with champagne. So he's really afraid of the sort of upper class system being overthrown from below by by this sort of angry proletariat kind of situation. So he, he wants to create an international system where people don't get backed into this kind of corner. And his the, the program he comes up with for Bretton Woods involves the deficit countries and the surplus countries sort of meeting in the middle. If you get backed into a corner because you have a big trade deficit, he's not going to make you responsible for fixing that problem by imposing pain on your citizens. You and the people, the country that has the surplus, they're going to have to come into balance together. Everybody's going to have to move their accounts together. So everything's not just all on on the debtor. The, the country that's in the worst, the worst position to deal with social revolt is going to have some level of leeway to work with this. And also to prevent things from getting out of balance, countries that build up surpluses steadily, they have to turn them over. Those surpluses can be seized by this sort of international super central bank, like like this ultra international Fed. I think it's a really interesting vision and potentially something could be really useful at a new sort of Bretton Woods style conference, but it just completely gets wrecked on basically the American empire at Bretton Woods. It just, it, we don't even come close to having that being implemented. And what we get at Bretton Woods instead is, is something sort of like a gold standard where the dollar is tied to gold, but there are these two very large bailout funds called the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So that when countries get into deep imbalances, there are funds available that can go to these countries to help them get out of this, this situation. And that system survives for like... <laughs> By the time Bretton Woods is implemented, it it, you know, it survives for like 10 years. I think it's nine years and a certain number of months that that actually survives. But those institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, still exist today, even though the Bretton Woods system itself is totally gone. And it's in no way clear that the IMF or the World Bank really function as these institutions that help countries, that, that genuinely help countries in need get out of these, these sort of deflationary corners. Like Keynes was trying to make it such that Countries in troubles didn't have to resort to austerity. And I think for most of the history of the IMF, for instance, you know, I, I think it's pretty reasonable to say the IMF has has encouraged austerity rather than rather than prevented it. To me, this outcome though at Bretton Woods just to a certain extent speaks to a lot of the some of the biggest weaknesses in Keynes's theory, which is that, and maybe it's because of his background, he seemed to 
believe that you could have these kind of enlightened officials who would come to the right decisions. You could have so much planning in the economy. But what he's calling for was not what we think of as Keynesianism, as you say in the book. It is a much more radical view. It is a, a really fairly centrally planned economy to a certain extent is what he's calling for. And what we see over and over again is that people are very flawed. Leaders are very flawed. And his entire life, he saw that. His entire life was spent arguing with people who weren't doing what he wanted to do. And yet he designs a theory that only works if people are always doing the right thing. Yeah, I think I think there are two sort of really interesting, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but Keynes is just disappointed by the British government his entire life. A really foundational moment for him is at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, where he says, you guys are being crazy. You're imposing completely unpayable reparations on Germany. And this is going to be economically disastrous, not just for Germany, but for the rest of Europe and the UK itself. This is going to be, you know, totally awful. And his friends in Bloomsbury are like, yeah, see, we told you the government sucks. What are you doing? Why are you working for the government? And he's like, well, I need to figure out how to make the government work. The government, I swear to God, it's, <laughs> we, we will find a way. <laughs> Good luck. But but he but he knows like you know on one level he knows just how terrible the British government is and how terrible the British Empire is. But he also you know has this kind of idealized like liberal imperialist vision of the British Empire where I think it's not too different from certain visions of American exceptionalism today, where where the British Empire is bringing the rest of the world into progress and prosperity and democracy and goodness and light. And he he just can't really let go of that idea that the British government can be this sort of useful guiding hand for for progress. And despite his own, you know, very, very clear knowledge that, that, that the government has failed him and the rest of the world very, you know, catastrophically and, and you know, unquestionably in his mind um, within his own lifetime. So, there's this strange duality where, where he has this deep faith in the ability of the technocrats who he despises to lift the world to a, to a higher place. But he also just believes in this kind of deep human rationality. And I, I think it's, it's tempting to say that Keynes is uh, that he favors this sort of technocratic control of things. But when you talk about, when you look into his beliefs about how social change happens, you know, how ideas become popular, it's rooted in a deep faith in the ordinary person to rationally perceive the truth just as the truth. And, and that's a very democratic kind of vision. And I think there are elements to both of these things that are deeply naive, but I also don't know how to extract them from faith and democracy itself. You know, if, if, if you really don't believe that people can come to see the truth in the face of good arguments, then how can you really believe in democracy as, as a, a form of social organization? Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Keynesianism. It, it fell out of favor for a while. So if you could explain a little bit like what that means for Keynesianism to fall out of favor, like what do you not do if you're not a Keynesian? Then it comes back with this thing called neo-Keynesianism. And maybe you can try and explain what the difference is between a Keynesian and a neo-Keynesian. Or maybe it's just like 
another word for Keynesian. And then as Victor asks, Victor Whitehead asks, what comes next? We had Stephanie Kelton on the show. You mentioned her earlier, modern monetary theory. Is that Keynesian in its own way? And we have another question from S.D. Denure basically saying, what about austerity? Is that the opposite of Keynesianism? Is that the <laughs> thing that we give up if we give up Keynesianism? What would get included in Keynesianism and what, and what would get included in whatever the opposite is? I'll try to tell a historical story that incorporates the austerity in there. So in the 1920s, when Keynes is really humming as a thinker, the sort of generally accepted view among British economists and economists on the European continent. In the United States, economic history of economic theory is like totally crazy and it doesn't follow these clear patterns. But in the 1920s, there's this sort of idea that markets are supposed to correct for disturbances, imperfections, distortions, and included in those markets is labor markets. So if you have a problem where suddenly, because of some unforeseen shock to the system, people start becoming unemployed, what will happen is that prices will lower, the price of labor will decline to the point at which all of those people who are unemployed will be able to get jobs again. And the system will, will correct for itself. So the logic of austerity in this milieu is, is sort of, you know, let, let markets correct so that the labor market can recover. Now, that is independent of the gold standard situation that's governing things. In the 1920s, governments can actually run out of money because their money is tied to a certain amount of gold. And if, if your gold is moving to other countries through you know, financial speculation or through a, a bad trade deficit, if you run out of money, you actually just can't pay people. If there's no gold, your paper's not worth anything. So governments do have to, in the situation, find ways to make sure that they actually don't physically run out of money. Now, since the 1930s, depending on how you define the Bretton Woods gold exchange standard, certainly since the 1970s, countries are not in, in a, governments are not in a situation where they're going to run out of money anymore. What you might have is a situation where Governments spend so much money, they spend new money into existence, and you have a problem of inflation where there are too many dollars chasing not enough, not enough economic activity. And that's bad for various reasons. People don't like inflation. They don't like to see their saving evaporate through no fault of their own. But for Keynes, there's not, there isn't one Keynesian theory over the course of his time as a thinker. We, we tend to focus on the general theory because it's this big breakthrough that says, yes, it's okay to do deficit spending. And that feels like a, an important legitimizing event. But Keynes keeps doing economics and he gets increasingly radical as he gets older. So after Bretton Woods, you know, he's, he's working on the beverage plan. He's, he's sort of the financial architect of nationalizing British medicine, for instance. He's really is, I think, the financial architect of the, the modern British welfare state. And that guy in the 1940s is not the same guy in 1919 who is criticizing the Treaty of Versailles. The, the economic ideas have changed and his sort of vision of what the possibilities are for humanity have changed. And there aren't a whole lot of people who identify as Keynesians after World War II who really embrace that full social welfare state, sort of democratic socialism vision that Keynes has in 1944, 1945, 1946, right before he dies. What becomes popular in the late 1940s, early 1950s in the United States is a version of Keynesianism that says, look, the market works, people are rational, this whole business about uncertainty, we're not going to worry about that. What happens is that sometimes something, sometimes things happen, just shit happens. The economy gets thrown out of whack. The government's got to act to make sure that the economy gets back to the state 
which is the normal state of affairs where markets work and things self-correct. And so you spend money in a recession to sort of get the mechanism back to working again. And by the 1960s, people like John Kenneth Galbraith are starting to say like, you know, these tools that we use to get the economy back to normal or back to full employment, they have distributional effects that are not neutral. It does matter whether we cut taxes or spend more. It matters what we spend on when we spend things. And so he starts calling the type of Keynesianism that takes hold in the 1960s. He starts calling that, Galbraith does, reactionary Keynesianism. He says, we're cutting taxes for rich people and exacerbating inequality in order to get the economy sort of back to level. And I think that's kind of the neo-Keynesian model that is, at least philosophically, dominant through the 1990s, even into the Obama administration. I mean, people may disagree about what the right policies are, but the, the basic view is that there's a market that's out there and there's a government that intervenes in that market. And the government is sort of unnatural. It's, it's a distortion. And you have to use the government to get the market back to its normal state of putting humanity on a glide path to prosperity. And the people who are in that milieu who are... Uh, supporting these ideas are not necessarily conservatives. Like there are people like Joseph Stiglitz, who I think espouses this basic philosophical vision, you know, who's a very strong progressive guy, right? Like he does not want to cut taxes on <laughs> on the rich and cut spending for the poor to make the economy get back to normal. But he does kind of believe that the market is out there doing its own thing. And the government has a role to correct for distortions, but not to sort of shape the whole thing. And I think where you you get into sort of what was called post-Keynesian for a while. What that really means is just the Keynesians who kept working on Keynesian ideas after Keynes died at Cambridge. So this is people like Joan Robinson, like Michael Kalecki. It's, it's just the Cambridge University staff. They don't accept this basic distinction between the economy and the government. And they think that governments basically create markets. They think that markets are, are a product of different legal forms. And I think the you know the closest thing to cambridge style economics in the united states today is the mmt crew which used to be at the university of missouri kansas city and now is spread out all over the place i i don't feel comfortable speaking on behalf of these guys cuz they don't seem to have like a they they disagree with each other so like i don't know <laughs> i don't know what mmt what the pure spirit of mmt is but i think people like Stephanie Kelton and Nathan Tankus, when they are at least talking about how inflation works, how money works, to me that that seems very broadly Keynesian in the sort of 1936 to 1944 Keynes understanding of things, which feels very radical to people who are from the, the other school, because it, it basically says, you know, the government is the thing that does all of this. It's not just, the government doesn't just intervene, the government makes everything. The government creates money. The government is responsible for markets and it's all government. So the government can do whatever it wants. Okay, that was Zach Carter doing his bookie things. But this is an episode of Slate Money. So we do need a numbers round. Anna, what's your number? My number is 23,000. That is the number of letters that were addressed to Santa Claus through a United States Postal Service system that they have set up. And I was reading an article about this and they were listing some of the things that kids asked for this year. And it's so sad because you have like a lot of these kids that will be like, I just want a coronavirus vaccine. Me too. I mean, obviously I want, also kids want like a PS5, but. <laughs> I want a PS5 and a coronavirus vaccine. I, I just want it all. My number is 23 billion. I am exactly a million times more 
than you. My number at 23 billion is the number of dollars that has gone to the sponsors of the SPACs that went public in 2020, which I don't know how to even explain this in a lightning numbers round, but basically a whole bunch of companies went public, which don't do anything. They just sit on a bunch of money and wait until they can use it to buy another company. But not all of the money goes to buy other companies. A bunch of it goes to the people who run the specs, these special purpose acquisition companies. If you add up how much money they have received this year, it's $23 billion. $23 billion. I guess they didn't (sighs) need much else for Christmas. That's enough money to buy the most expensive PS5 on eBay. (laughs) Buy all the PS5s. (laughs) All of the PS5s. Emily, what's your number? My number, Felix, is 94. That is the age of Marilyn Haggerty, who is North Dakota's most famous restaurant critic and is a national treasure. We love Marilyn Haggerty. Yes. She's amazing. I mean, I can read her on garlic bread every week. Yes. She went viral in 2012 because she wrote an amazing review of the Olive Garden in North Dakota where she lives. And there's another piece about her more recently in the New York Times talking about like her pandemic life as a restaurant critic. And I'm going to go ahead and say that it is a must read. You need to read everything about this woman. She is a treasure. She's keeping busier than most journalists, I'd say, in this pandemic. She's filing three times a week, a range of pieces. And yeah, I think she's a delight. And I'm glad she exists. And when she can't go into a restaurant because of COVID, she just reviews the takeout. She gets the takeout. And she's been back to the Olive Garden. Very important, exclusive reporting here. She's been back to the Olive Garden, and they did not give her enough olives in her salad. So uh-huh. that's just something to be aware of. But she was nice about them because she's one of those restaurant critics who will never actually say anything mean about anyone ever. Yes, exactly. Which is kind of nice, especially in these yeah. times. Especially in these times. If you want <laughs> to read a restaurant review that you know is going to be a positive restaurant review, just hit up Marilyn Haggerty. They don't all have to be takedowns, although I do enjoy reading a good takedown, like a Pete Wells just scathing. Because we're New Yorkers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. All right. Okay, I think that's it for our special Boxing Day edition of Sleep Money. Thanks for hanging out with us. And we are going to do a Sleep Plus segment on our favorite books of the year. If you're a Sleep Plus member, you're going to enjoy that one. Otherwise, thanks for emailing us, sleepmoney at sleep.com. And we will be with you next week with another episode of Sleep Money. 